like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. (coughs) The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. (coughs) Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruits? The boar from its forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then shall we not turn back from you, Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So um, let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for uh, hearts to believe what you say. And we pray for your spirit's power and making us willing to do as you would have us do. And live in a way that would be pleasing to you. Pray that we would be people of prayer. Prayer that reflects what we see today. In Christ's name, amen. Maybe some of you are people that like to restore things. I don't know. I mean, I don't. Yeah, Holmes like was like, yeah. He likes to restore old tractors, and so he's constantly has a tractor uh, in in at, at this time of his life. Just is always restoring those. Some of you maybe uh, you know know about uh, the church building, the Notre Dame in Paris that burned. You know, they collected money from people like a billion dollars. Uh, from companies and individuals and and things, but um, that doesn't even start the restoration of that thing hardly. I mean, they're working on it, but uh, I think some estimate it's going to cost like $8 billion to restore it. Uh, Some of you, if you're from Texarkana area, you have uh, been, you know, like watching the Grimm for a hotel for a number of years, maybe 20 years, people were talking about the restoration of the Grimm, and uh, you know, I kind of finally got to that place where I was like, "This, this is not going to happen." You know, so, there's nobody really, and now it is. And if you go downtown and you see it, I mean, you realize like, I mean, it's it's a pretty, uh, 
extensive thing, and it's, it's neat to see what's going on. When I think about restoration, I really do think about buildings or equipment or some kind of different things like that. I don't usually think about restoring a people or a nation. Um, it just doesn't generally come to my mind. Now, in the context of what we are talking about today, the prayer is for a, a restoration of sorts. And some people see this as pre the Assyrian northern kingdom of Israel, pre Assyrian uh, conquest into there, you know, and then some see it as post. And I don't know that we can say with, you know, a sh- without a shadow of a doubt exactly where this is. But again, what you're saying is, is uh, what, whatever may be behind these powerful Assyrians, whether this is a time where they're like kind of running, rushing in and then going back out, uh, whether it's that particular period or if it's uh, a period of time where they've actually already faced this judgment, uh, this is where we're at. And so the, the pressure is on and there's a lot of things going on here that are difficult. And I just say, like when we're praying for restoration, for things to be right and restored, uh, this is a good psalm to think about uh, in that regard. So again, remember, we talked about the fall of Jerusalem last week. Now we're talking about uh, the fall of Samaria or like the precursor to its fall uh, several centuries earlier. Uh, one, one guy that his name is Dish, he says, The psalmist, as it seems, prays in a time in which the oppression of the Assyrian uh, rested heavily upon the kingdom of Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah saw itself threatened with ruin when the bulwark uh, would fall. Like So as they looked up to the northern kingdom, or not looked up to them, but looked toward the northern kingdom and said to themselves, like, if they fall, there will be no one between us and Assyria. That could have been one of their prayers, reasons for their prayers. And a, a, a better reason might even be like, we want them in a good place. We'd hate to see them uh, destroyed. And so this is concerning the Assyrians coming after the northern kingdom. Now, I want you to look at the text real quick and look at verse 3 and verse 7 and verse 19. If you have a pen and you mark in a Bible like generally I would, I would mark my Bible, make notes or whatever. Uh, um, or, I don't know, you're using some other form. If you can highlight those uh, in verse 3, 7, and 19, you just see the term, uh, restore us. And that just helps you see, it's like a repeated chorus. The phrase is um, kind of like recalling the great blessing that once the people experienced, where God's face was shining on them. And now that's not where they find themselves, and so they're saying, restore us by looking favorably upon us, by smiling upon us. That would be the idea here. And so you can see that it helps you think about being under God's favor. He asked God to shepherd them. Again, very common to Israel, uh, the, the idea of shepherding. And even with God in the way that he shepherded his people. When he speaks of that, he's speaking of these tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh from the northern kingdom, and uses them as an example for all of them. And it seems the prayer is uh, the southern kingdom in worship, uh, watching the storm brewing in the north and praying. That, that's kind of the picture that you see here. 
And you have to remember that once that the northern and southern kingdom were divided, there was always trouble amongst these two. But but if if they were thinking rightly, one, they're thinking about their own protection, but they're also thinking about, like, as much as I don't like messing with them, uh, I don't like seeing people mess with them, kind of like brothers. So that, that might be kind of the way to see this. So now there are two images in this psalm uh, uh, about God, and one is that he is a shepherd, as already mentioned, and the other one is that he is the, a planter and keeper of the vine. So, so not just a vine dresser, but one that would, would both plant it and uh, keep it. And so uh, Boyce simply calls this psalm God's flock and God's vine, which is a huge Im- imagery, and, and you probably, if you've read the Bible much, you realize that this, this imagery comes up um, every now and then. It's really helpful for us. Now, here's the thing. In light of the fact that if this is the southern kingdom, looking at the northern kingdom, knowing the Assyrians are have either already completely attacked them and carried them away, or they're coming in and they're, it, the storm is brewing around them. If that's kind of where we are, the question then is this, when you see someone suffering, how do you respond? That might be a real practical thing. When you see the storm brewing around someone's life, how do you respond? Uh, if you're really self-righteous in this room, we know how you respond. Arrogantly, and like a Pharisee. You look and say, God, just want to check in with you and tell you, I'm glad I'm not like these people. That, that would be how you might respond. And you look down upon the sick because they didn't eat as healthy as you or exercise like you properly, you know, exercise. You might look out down on someone in a poor financial situation and say, they didn't work as hard as I did or they did not save like I did. I'm like a little squirrel that's been saving up for the winter while they're out spending everything they have. Or, if their kids are acting up, you might say something like, well, if they'd have been as good a parents as I was, you know. Nice Pharisees, don't you? Those kind of people are really some of the furthest from God as you'll ever meet. But they're very religious, so they'll be in church. Now, that might be one way. Then you're not really praying. Your prayer would look like this. I'm glad I'm not like the rest of those people. Guys. I, you know, that's one. The other one is is this prayer, which is uh, showing compassion to the one who is suffering. That that's the way I think you would see this. So here's the thing. Now again, we're about to make a statement that like the Pharisee comes boldly into the presence of God because he is so righteous, so much not like you know, the wicked. This person comes boldly to him in prayer with arguments based upon his person and promises. Verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. 
before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. So as you look at this, I mean, it's just important, again, just to kind of put it in context. Ephraim and Manasseh, prominent tribes. They were tribes, uh, they were, there were two children that, uh, they were Joseph's sons, if you go way back, and uh, that were given. Joseph was given a double portion when uh, Israel, Jacob, uh, whose name would become Israel, blessed them. And he also mentions Benjamin. And so all of that centered around Rachel, uh, Jacob's favorite wife, or fav- you know, it was his favorite wife. And so uh, it's kind of like stirring up within him like this thing of like hey god don't you remember these that you shepherded remember how precious they were to jacob remember what jacob said of them and i mean your it's your word that's spoken there all those things kind of come to mind and so he is he's coming boldly but he he's not coming he's coming in a way where he's saying like god you remember you're the shepherd you you, you know that like your people are your sheep you're the protector, the one who watches over, the one who provides for. Remember that, God. And then he says, you're not a shepherd like a lowly shepherd where you see shepherds and you think, oh, they're kind of the lowest kind of uh, working class people. You are the shepherd who sits on the throne of the universe. And so he's saying to them, I mean, he's saying to God, look, I'm coming to you boldly because I know who you are. And not only that, I know what you promised. Both of those things are true. Now, again, you only come in this way if your heart is wanting good for these people. Now, again, if we brought our self-righteous so-called Christian, not sure, but self-righteous person in, they would say, don't pray for them. Those sorry folks, they, they're getting what they deserve. They're sinners. They worship other gods. They reject God's love, turn away from his commandments, follow after false prophets. Get away from them. We don't want any part of that. I can't wait to see the smoke coming up from, their, from the north. Because I know they're getting what they get. So when you think about that, it's interesting though. Again, I think what we see here is the exact opposite. It's someone saying, God, remember those people you shepherded. Don't forget that. Remember your commitment to them. Don't forget that. He, he's going to say like basically, you know, and you can look at Genesis 49, 24 when it very, the, the early days of all those things. But I think it's important just to kind of note that. But just look, Lord, you, you're, you're a shepherd and you remember. You, you know how flocks are wayward. You know how they move away. Lord, you shepherd them like you've shepherded them in the past. Also, again, touching on God's power, he's saying, God, remember, you're, you're the one on the throne. You're the shepherd on the throne. Um, you, you can address the issues. You can address the problems of this people. If you are not, if you don't address the problems of this people, they have no hope. There's nothing for them. There's no hope for them. But you are a shepherd and you're the king. And then also, it's just kind of like he's saying, look, you're the shepherd that has, 
promises that you made from way long in the past. You know, we, we, we want, Lord, remember that. You, you made promises to them. You're, you're the one who said, that you, you're, you remember you set your, your covenant love on them, your face to shine upon them. And he actually speaks of that. And so he's going to use this great benediction of Aaron, and he's going to say, remember, Lord, Aaron spoke over the people, Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So what is he saying? Lord, come and do that. That, that really, if you said, like, if I could learn anything about prayer this week, you might, from this psalm, I just might learn how to look at a situation and, and then and see people, like, in a way to know their weaknesses and know what they need. And then I'm going back and reflecting on who God is, and then I'm praying for them in a way that would say, Lord, do the things that we know you do. Uh, one of the things uh, one of our groups of kids have done over the last year was like learn the names of God. So it's like uh, you see the situation, you think of the name, you say, I need to take that name. And one of my kids talked about even like at night, like a storm kind of like, you know, could get you a little bit apprehensive. And there was a reminder that one of the names came to them and they took the name. So God, remember, this is you. God delights in that. And so I think it's important to see that. So, so he comes boldly in prayer because he knows his person and his promises. And rather than wanting these people totally destroyed, he has the heart of a uh, really almost a shepherd himself. And he's praying for the great shepherd to do something. The second thing you see is, um, is if God is the source of judgment in this case, we'll talk about that for a minute, uh, then he alone is our, the only hope for mercy which I think is a really helpful way to think about that. Oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? So you're looking up there and you say, wait, aren't these people praying, God? Like, how long are you going to be angry with their prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies. Uh, laugh among, ourselves, uh, among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. So what's he saying? He's saying, how long will you be angry with their prayers? That, that's an interesting thing to think about. God being, God being angry with someone coming to him. Again, the idea here is this is how desperate the situation is. God has done so many things for them to hear and listen and come back. He sent prophet after prophet. They've killed the prophets. They rejected everything. They they would say stuff like, uh, at different times you see one of the prophets, which was in a, a little bit different context, but he, they basically told one prophet, the southern kingdom did this, but they said, like, go back home and take your prophecies there. Leave us alone. That was kind of the, I guess I just said, say that's a norm there, that there's a rejection of uh, the ways of God and the will of God. And so God's like this, you're, I'm done with you. And he's saying, he's praying, Lord, look, if we know you've made, you, we know that you're behind it. Sometimes you might look at your life and think, I, um, 
you may have a long list of like, well, this is my enemy at this job, and this is my enemy in my home, and this is my enemy at church, and here's all my enemy. I've got a list of enemies. I've got all these people that have done all these bad things to me my whole life. I've got such a long list, I can just pull it out and tell you. Just ask me. And, and you just you have to remind yourself that if you're facing trouble, the bigger problem is not the Assyrians. The bigger problem is the one who reigns over the Assyrians. The God who is over it all. Their greatest fear should be of Him. They should say, listen, if God controls the whole universe, the Assyrians are under His control. They, they don't move upon the northern kingdom without God allowing them to move. He's watching over that. They're actually an instrument in God's hand, an instrument of judgment. Romans 13 says their governments are ministers of judgment upon the wicked, and they are the wicked. And he says, like, unless you show mercy, there is no hope for us, for you are the God behind it all. Duncan states, all of the horizontal earthly battlefields of life are simply the outworking of that vertical warfare in which we are engaged. That's shocking. Because we always want to put it in the horizontal. We want to look at life under the sun with no view of God with no understanding of who He is and what He is doing. Again, when you see your brother or sister struggling because of their bad behavior, are you sitting there, standing above them, or looking down upon them and saying to yourself, well... What we try to tell you. Or, like this one, are you praying? Oh God, be merciful. You remember Moses, the most humble man? The Lord called him one of the most humble men that walked the earth. What, what did he do? The people were wanting to, like, kill him. And they were doing all kinds of rebellious things. And he says, Lord, please. And the Lord says, look, I can just wipe them out and start over with you. And he's like, Lord, please don't. Please save them. Shock, I mean, it's just shocking. And it is, uh, that's just the sign of, I think, of true. Uh, some people think, again, they're spiritually mature. If, if spiritual maturity looks like this, does this look like you? I mean, that's I mean, that just something. You're mature. Does this look, look like you? Highest form of maturity is one who is humble, and they are serving, and they are giving their lives in, like, blessing people. People that are rebellious, you know? People that are struggling in their sin. They're facing the judgment of God. And I think that's just a helpful thing to see. When we think about God's flock, we're going to look at God's vine, but I just think you say we come boldly in prayer and we say, Lord, remember who you are and remember your promises. 
we say, Lord, you are the source of judgment. Like you are the means by which things happen in this world. Nothing happens outside of your control. And so you have to be the one that shows mercy. And then the third thing, see, you kind of think about this. When you lift up to the Lord, um, maybe even a question of why he does what he does, sometimes you have to say, oh, I don't know the answer to that, and he's not going to tell me. And he doesn't have to. He's king. And I'm not always privy to his plans or purposes. And I need to just be quiet. I mean, that's what Job kind of needed to do. Job was like, mm-mm, I shouldn't even be here. God didn't say, oh, Job, you, yeah, you, 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 no, you've done some really bad things. He didn't say that. He said, Job, be quiet. That's basically what he says to him. You don't understand anything, you know, because you'll meet these people. They know everything about everything. My kids probably think that about me because they're like, you know, everything. You keep talking, you know. Uh, they were messing me the other day about like one of them was messing with me about just like I don't need any more of the story the narrative I think is what like okay that's probably true you know and it is one of those things where you say you know what when I look at these things sometimes I just need to say no you should be quiet because the why is not for me to to have the answer to I have to trust him Verses 8 through 13, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed it. What's he saying? He's speaking of Israel as a vine. And he is saying, remember, Lord, you went and took the vine up and planted it anew, and you ran out all those inhabitants, and it grew and flourished. Remember how amazing it was you remember how it flur- everything was so beautiful don't you remember all the wonderful things that were going on with that vine like you're the one that planted it and the one that kept it and what made it flourish lord like what what is going on now now at one level you could say we know what's going on their sin on another level, you might look at things sometimes and think, yeah, but Lord, couldn't you have made them really repentant without it totally being destroyed and everything just falling apart? And we don't know all those things. We don't know the answer. Oftentimes, those things come later. Now, what do we learn later? When they didn't know all that was going on in God's redemptive plan, what we find out later is there was a vine that was to come. A vine that would foreshadow, I mean, that these things foreshadowed, the true vine. And you had Jesus come on the scenes and you see him really as one who's coming. He says, I am the true vine. And he's the true vine that will produce fruit. And it's, it's the vine that, that was the greater vine, you could say. 
Jesus, on the night when he was um, about to die, he stood before his disciples in, in, in that time period and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Again, it is reminding us that the foreshadowing of the, even the trouble of this vine is foreshadowing the trouble that the true vine would face, but he would come forth victorious and we would experience restoration. The vine would flourish, but it would flourish far beyond just that piece of land over there. So, sometimes we don't know the bigger picture. Oftentimes we don't. And we got to be okay with that. And we just got to say to ourselves, I don't always know what he is doing. I saw it. I thought it was going to be beautiful. Things just messed up and they sinned. And it now they're just all, all, is, all seems to be lost. And yet, the bigger picture is that God had a bigger plan than just that small piece of land. This kingdom that Jesus said he would build would spread throughout the whole earth. So then the last portion, 14 through 19 here. God answers our prayers not as we pray them. As, as uh, I can't remember, I read this, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. So God answers prayers not as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. So look at verses 14 through 19. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall turn back from, uh, back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So here there's this, in this picture, this, this idea of this pleading for the Lord, or to the Lord, and asking Him to do this, this work on behalf of them. And so we're, we're seeing this, that He's pleading uh, to, to God for His faithfulness and His compassion. And so we're not always... You know, we don't always know exactly how to pray. We don't know exactly what to say, maybe. But the proper thing to do is to come before him and ask him to do a work. If you remember, in Genesis 49, he says, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. This is speaking to Benjamin. And Benjamin's name is son of your right hand. If you recall upon uh, the death of his mother, when Benjamin was being born, she called him son of my sorrow. And Jacob said, no, his name is son of my right hand. And so what happens is here, you just kind of see this. The psalmist prays that God's hand of blessing and favor for the northern tribe would, would take place. But he didn't even understand fully what was happening. His prayer would be answered with the true son of his right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God's right hand. And Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world, would come and he would rescue us. The sufferings of Israel would foreshadow the suffering of the Messiah. And that's what is taking place 
hear. So I think when you say this, this and you're thinking about praying and you're thinking about your own prayers and you're thinking about what is going on, there is something here that's so much bigger than what they could see. And he comes to them and he's arguing, Lord, I know who you are. I know your promises. I can trust you. You're the great shepherd. We need you to act. He does accurately recognize that if there are problems in this life, it is not separated from God. Everything that you see, even his judgments, even the judgments that we see in this life, the only hope we have is to go to the one who is the Lord over the judgments and the Lord of mercy. Sometimes when we pray, we say, Lord, can you not do this? Why are you not doing this? I don't understand we have to come to that place where we say, you know what, God's secret will uh, is not something we're privy to. So we just have to bow the knee. And then finally, we don't necessarily know what all we're praying for, but the Lord has this bigger plan. And sometimes your prayers may be answered in yet the future. Ultimately, this has a massive like, uh, consequences as the Lord Jesus Christ would be the one who would come to rescue his people. So if you're here today and you're asking yourself like, man, I want to learn to pray. I want to learn to pray when people are suffering. I want to have this kind of heart and I want to learn how to pray properly. Then you pray then in this way. This could be a model for you as you watch people under uh, uh, going suffering, even at their own hands, sins that they've committed. You can beg the Lord and, and go before the throne and say, Lord, let me see you work and you you appeal to him you appeal to him as a great shepherd and as the one who is both the planter and the keeper of the vine when you think about the church and you think about this church and you think about the struggles in this church or in your life you could go back to this and you could say oh lord you're the one who does what you do you are the one that keeps these things you're the one that watches over you are the protector please lord work on our behalf that's what we should do. You should pray for our church. You should pray for the churches in America. You should pray for the churches of the world. You should pray for individuals' lives. You should pray for your individual Christian brothers and sisters who may be in a place where you think they're wayward. You, you can use this prayer as a means to uh, ask the Lord to move mightily, and it will guide you through, and I hope that you will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I ask for wisdom. That I would 